how do you make long-term apartment living every bit as much the California dream as the single-family home? From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Walton. We're here today with Francis Anderton, author, journalist, curator, and broadcaster. You know Francis as host of uh, the DNA Design and Architecture radio program on KCRW Santa Monica. Francis joins us today to discuss her interest in the question of what makes home in Los Angeles. Francis, welcome. Well, thank you so much, Charles. It's really lovely to have a chance to chat with you. I know you've been, um, over the course of the past couple of decades, as a broadcaster focusing on design and the built environment broadly in Los Angeles, uh, for three decades a resident, a resident of Los Angeles. And recently you've been focusing in your work on the question of housing in Los Angeles. I think, of course, uh, challenges around affordability and access to housing. Uh, on the one hand, you know, Los Angeles had, of course, been the quintessential object of desire for much of the 20th century, the idea of the, the middle class, uh, white suburban owner of a single family home. And that model as an image of the future of Los Angeles has been so powerful for so long. However, more recently, of course, the, the city of Los Angeles has been focusing more on uh, density, more on uh, multifamily housing. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could share your thoughts with us about that uh, and your observations about the state of housing in Los Angeles. Yes. And thank you again, Charles, for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, the housing issue really is an interesting one, partly because LA, perhaps more than anywhere in the world, is literally defined by its housing or defined by home, as in defined by lifestyle. If one thinks about New York, uh, one thinks about the theatre, one thinks about restaurants, one thinks about many, many aspects of New, New York life. And in a way, the, the apartment or the loft or the condo that one lives in in New York sort of serves than being in New York. Whereas in LA, the home itself is the point of being here. And I really certainly saw how that manifested architecturally when I first visited in the late 80s and then moved here in the 1990s. Really, so many architects that I knew then were engaged with the single family home as a forum for architectural experimentation. Well, fast forward 30 years, here we are in 2020, and that proposition has become far less accessible. It's become less accessible to the so-called regular person on a regular salary to acquire and own one's own home. And then for architects themselves, it has become far less accessible of a laboratory or a venue for experimentation because when the land values have become so high, which they are now, rare is the client or the architect owner of the land that's going to take risks on building a home when, when really that home is now going into the millions. So the change in the state of home in LA is I think having an impact on the story of architecture in LA. So anyway, as you just mentioned, yes, indeed, more units currently being built in LA are, as I understand it, multifamily as opposed to single family. Developers are doing far more infill work and building five, six storey um, uh, apartments or sometimes condos or they're going right up in some areas where it's allowed to 20, 30 stories, particularly downtown Los Angeles. We see Hollywood. Certain areas have been upzoned to the point where housing can go very high. 
There's definitely some architectural questions attached to all of that, as in a worrying amount of the multifamily that's being built doesn't appear to say much about being of LA. There's a somewhat sort of generic quality to a lot of the multifamily that's appearing. It may be because some of that housing is literally, its developers are global companies, not necessarily LA-based companies. So that's one piece of the multifamily story. Another piece of the multifamily story is the politics of multifamily housing, because even as LA, well, let me start, let me say, LA exists to live, like that's the raison d'etre of LA, a raison d'etre. Another raison d'etre is LA lives to develop. The sort of point of Los Angeles, a big point of Los Angeles is real estate development. It has been since Americans first arrived here in the late 19th century. So developers want to keep on developing and they're finding their their job has become a lot more constrained, constrained by costs of land, but also constrained by the what is now very strong political constituency of people who live in single family homes. Single family homeowners in LA form very powerful voting blocks. They can make or break the career of a local politician. So while local politicians in LA, in principle, believe or know that their neighbourhoods, their cities need to have more housing in order to stay economically viable. They need to build for people doing the regular work as well as the well-paid tech workers or entertainment industry workers or finance workers or whatever. So there is a general consensus that this area needs to build a lot more housing. It needs to build it fast. But when push comes to shove, when it comes to actually putting in a block of six units or 10 units or 50 units at a certain intersection, there invariably is pushback. And the pushback comes from the nearby or adjacent homeowners associations that don't want said tower or said affordable housing project going into their neighbourhood. Housing has become immensely politicised and very, very tough to, to achieve in practice. And we're talking very definitely about housing aimed at the you know very low end or very low economic end. But we're also talking about the so-called market rate or luxury housing. There's there's pushback against that too. And where this was most kind of acutely illustrated was in the efforts at state level by um, a man named um, Scott Wiener based in San Francisco. And he has for about the last two to three years tried to bring in legislation that would basically mandate upzoning of neighbourhoods that are either within close proximity of a of a new mass transit station or an economically thriving area. And he has tried to use state law to basically override local zoning on the argument that local zoning is not able to deliver on the housing that people speak about rhetorically so enthusiastically. He's tried to push this legislation through now two to three times. He's reauthored the bill. He's changed it, had amendments, et cetera, et cetera. It never passes. And all the city council people in LA, all of whom talk 
volubly about how we need to build more housing. They all do not support this bill and they don't support it because politicians don't want to lose the political power over local development. It's it's one of their arenas of power. And as I say, homeowners make a very powerful political constituency and can make or break the careers of politicians. Now, talk to activists around housing or talk to homeowners associations and what you will often hear is a rage against the big bad developer, the developer that is coming in wanting to make lots of money off of market rate housing or the unsympathetic council person who wants to bring in affordable housing for the formerly homeless. And either way, the message that you will you will often hear is that neighbourhood character is being upset in order to bring in these people that, frankly, miss their turn, miss their turn. There's a very strong desire to hold on to neighbourhoods as they are. And um, so this has become a humongous issue in LA. I'm I'm intrigued by this notion of um, the character of residential neighbourhood. You mentioned, you know, initially... Uh, the role of the single family house as in both uh, an affordable entry point for the middle class, but also as a, a form of experimentation, a, a medium of experimentation for a range of architects from the case study houses all the way through the, the LA or Santa Monica schools. Of course, you know, generations of you know Southern California architects have built their chops, they've built their practices on the experimentation, the, both the, the number of, but the relative um, you know, kind of variability of different clientele, and so of course it's a it's a it's an enormous irony that this would then be invoked in terms of the preservation of of some kind of characteristic uh, at the level of the of, of the neighborhood. You, you also mention, um, I think, quite rightly, uh, the role of generational change in this regard, right? So of course, these many of these houses, many of these homeowners associations, are filled with boomers who got out there at the right time and bought in at the right price point at the right time in the market, if I take your meaning, uh, and now are essentially suggesting, well, we we can't upscale, we can't really upzone, we can't really increase density relative to their expectation of lifestyle, precisely as you said, because it's the, it's the home, which is the venue for lifestyle, which is very different than what you've said about uh, New York and presumably also different in a city like London. We, we've all seen the imagery back, especially from the early part of last century, on so much of the imagery of Los Angeles has been a happy family enjoying what barbecuing or um, sitting in the conversation pit or um, kids uh, playing out in the front yard, um, families sitting around the table enjoying the fruits of the new kind of electrical appliances that you know now make their kitchen and their dining room you know the the eating experience of the future. I mean, all of that is so much part of LA's imagery. Or if we jump to, you know, painters like David Hockney, you know, <laughs> David Hockney was such a revelation to me when I first saw his paintings because he simply painted a couple standing in a garden with a sprinkler system, you know, and yet there was something so amazingly powerful and evocative about those images. Or it was the backyard pool, the backyard pool. And, you know, this was a place where a middle class family could have a backyard pool and it would be a kidney shaped pool because they just, discovered how to do gunite. So you got your futuristic kidney-shaped pool and you had your barbecue and you had your high-tech then kitchen. And all of these became... And then, of course, you know, if we're talking case study and some of the more, I guess, sort of, you know, modernist 
planners and architects, then we got our inside-outside lifestyle and we got that feeling of flow, that flow from the inside through to the outside, that, that feeling of connection to the landscape, which is also part of the Los Angeles experience. When I first visited LA in the 1980s, at that point, I was amazed to go and meet designers, architects who were working in their garage in the back of their home and their their day seemed to be so pleasant. You know, they had a job. Yes, they were working, but it was within the venue of the home or in in the ve- within the venue of a home life that was that was beautiful and delicious and full of bounty, you know, as you were sitting by your avocado tree and you were having your lunch, you know, outside under the olive tree. I mean, it, it's, it's lovely. And, and, the, and the Mediterranean climate just enabled a kind of, um, a kind of ease, right? A kind of ambiance, a kind of mise-en-scene. Yes, it was about ease and it was about mise-en-scene. But I have to say that even as that lifestyle was available to a substantial number of people, it didn't mean that everybody in LA got that lifestyle. And this is, I guess, again, where we can start to come back to housing, because even as houses were the main attraction, you still at the same time had plenty of plenty of examples of housing that was built by developers, often small developers, as in a person buys a house and then they buy the land next door and then they turn the land next door, if the zoning permitted it, into a dingbat. You know, we saw a burst of dingbat construction in the 50s and early 60s. And so you did certainly have plenty of um, housing types that catered to the more transient Angelino, the Angelino that came here hoping to make it perhaps in Hollywood, rented a place for a couple of years, things didn't pan out, they kind of moved on somewhere, not sure where they went. Maybe they got married and bought a house, maybe they went back to where they come from. Who knew? LA's full of a lot of people that just sort of cycle through. But what's interesting about where we're at now is that people are increasingly being faced with the choice of, okay, I came to LA like so many did to see if I could achieve my dream, be an actor, become an architect, do cool buildings, whatever. And I started by renting. And then I find that I'm sort of still renting, but now I'm 10 years older and now I have a partner and now we're thinking of having a kid or we've got a dog and we want to have a yard and all those conversations start happening or we want to build equity. And oh, yes, now we'd like to have the single family home, just like and other Angelinos always did. And now it's starter price is 700,000, you know, even in South LA, an area that used to be associated with certainly cheap property and problems, challenges. So so you now have, and I'm sure you've talked to Christopher Hawthorne about this, you now have people who are, who in many other towns would be the middle class and they would be buying a home and they're finding it a struggle in LA and they're faced with the question of, do I leave LA so I can have that that thing, that lifestyle and the house, or do I do I take second best, which is some other option in LA? It's staying as a renter for longer, or it's buying a condo. So anyway, that's that's what's happening in LA now. It is a topic that we've discussed with uh, with many of our many of our guests speaking about Southern California, Christopher Hawthorne among them. 
you mentioned the dingbat. Of course, the dingbat would be uh, among the absolutely unique uh, typological inventions of Los Angeles architects in the second half of the 20th century, along with the googie and others. And so you, you mentioned, you know, Francis, a kind of anxiety, a kind of concern you have about as multifamily housing, uh, as kind of mid-rise housing, five, six, or even taller buildings are being built, especially along the major thoroughfares, the avenues, that they are tending toward a certain kind of formula, uh, a certain kind of vernacular might be a, a more neutral term to use. We've we've heard this expressed by many of our guests who are concerned about the, the expression of a kind of, on the one hand, a, a kind of set of zoning ordinances or land use restrictions combined with a certain development pro forma that produces a certain kind of regularity. Uh, and, and for most of our guests, this regularity uh, kind of pales in comparison with the invention of the dingbad or the kind of expression of these new modes in the 20th century. But isn't there something on the other hand to, to be said for the vernacular? Isn't there something to be said for what used to be referred to without embarrassment or irony, background buildings? Well, there is absolutely something to be said for the vernacular, but I wouldn't call the multifamily buildings that my, myself and my colleagues are raising concerns about, I wouldn't call them vernacular. I would call them international generic, as in, I would say the kinds of buildings that we're probably all reacting against are the the, the five over twos or the tall glazed towers that really you could find anywhere from Toronto to uh, Philadelphia, you know, there's there's just there's just an absolute lack of specificity about them. So I would say background buildings at their best are background buildings that nonetheless belong to the background they're in, as in they suit the topography, they suit the climate, they suit the culture of that has produced them. So no, nothing against background buildings. In fact, good, we love background buildings, but we just love background buildings that have character. Now, I will just say about the dingbats, though, that I, I do part company with some of my friends and colleagues in terms of admiration levels for dingbats. Dingbats, which were uh, maximizing square footage, you put maybe six or 10 units in a block and you put them along a long site and then you have the cars out front and you have your, um, and then you reach the apartments all by an alley that then takes you up staircases to, to each dingbat. Generally, with a few with few exceptions, I would say generally the dingbats were actually pretty mean spaces to live in. They kind of looked cool. They had this LA flair because one, their their front facade was quite intriguing because on the ground level you had the rear end of the car and then you had these thin posts sort of holding up the upper level and then you would have your characteristic and this is what everybody loves about them your sunburst or your you know moon and the planets. People love the graphic. Um, little seashells or exploding comet or something. People have, have a great affection for dingbats, largely because they're not living in themselves and they like the graphic treatment and they like the fact that Ed Roucher has immortalised them in, you know, images raising the image of the so-called banal, you know. So, but... As someone myself who actually lives in multifamily and has chosen to live in multifamily for many years... I actually think that dingbats generally were impoverished spaces to actually live in. The developer or the landlord, the property owner, gave little heed to access to outdoor space for the tenants. There was the the windows are often mean in size, so the light levels are not very good. You often or barely got light from more than 
one side, you you might get a chink of light coming in from both sides. But but Jen, I don't think we should overrate the dingbats in terms of a living experience. It's true. I mean, when when's the last time one saw a filmic experience or a cultural expression of the interiority of the dingbat? I think it's precisely well put, Francis. The, the dingbat was valorized on the one hand for its its radical invention, you know, the kind of the, the logic of, you know, the automobile, the logic of a volume of as of right development, but also always seen from the automobile at speed. No, almost always. Yes. And when it was valorized in film, it was valorized negatively because actually you do have, I think, L.A. La La Land. I believe the character in La La Land is living in a dingbat and and you go in, I mean, I'd have to double check, but there definitely have been characters in movies in dingbats, but they're never portrayed as the stylish place to live. They're portrayed or unless it's seen from the outside. You mentioned the, uh, the you invoked the category of the international generic, which is as, as succinct a formulation and aptest formulation as, I, as I've heard. I think it's true. Of course, Los Angeles has been a destination for people both coming from across America, from across the world, as we've seen. Are you concerned about the extent to which Los Angeles is a, simply a, a vehicle for offshore development? Uh, is it a place where people are simply uh, buying a condo to secure a visa and park some resources, as we've seen in, in so many other American cities? Do you know, I've actually asked people who know more about that market than I do, as in high-end realtors. I've asked them exactly that question. And what they've told me is that LA doesn't have that market to the extent that you had it or you have it in Manhattan or London. Having said that, it's certainly what you are seeing is developers throwing up these um, sort of luxury condo or apartment towers in, in downtown and parts of LA because that's where they can, you know, because the pressure or the constraints on development in so many parts of LA mean that when a developer can build tall and plentiful, they will. And um, and then they'll look for, you know, a, an affordable way to make it all pencil out. And often that means going for a rather f- formulaic kind of construction and um, materials and an ultimate look. So now, even though there isn't the market that you find of, you know, the oligarchs parking their money in the in the condos in New York or Manhattan, you do certainly have a market here of people buying, perhaps having their home, having their nice house in Ojai and then having a condo in downtown. Yes, there, there's definitely people for whom these units might not be their solo residence. What I have been told from realtors is that generally people are buying places to actually serve as a residence. It might be, yes, some parents from overseas that want their child to come to college at USC, so they purchase a property for that child. And yes, there's definitely that market. In fact, realtors have told me that the only people that can afford to buy in LA these days, the only younger people who can afford to buy in LA are people whose parents have put down the down payment. Now, they might be slightly exaggerating, but but that's what they told me. So has downtown LA come so far that one can live in Southern California elsewhere and have a pied a terre? Is is that a thing? If, I mean, I don't know whether I'd go so far as to say it's a thing, but I've certainly <laughs> I've certainly met, you know, one or two people who are living like that. 
what I would say is that downtown is going through its own set of challenges right now. For some architects, you know, working in Los Angeles, um, you know, their focus on uh, affordability and access to housing for the formerly homeless or the formerly incarcerated has become one of the central themes of these conversations. We know that, as you've mentioned, many, many of the architects uh, in Southern California are focusing on multifamily housing. And we're struck by the number of uh, projects, both uh, kind of community, uh, you know, community development corporation led, but also um, not for profit or NGO led projects delivering a affordable housing. Have, have you seen more architectural experimentation or are you optimistic about the architectural aspirations of those affordable housing projects? There's a lot of architectural aspiration in that arena. And it's actually been fascinating how that has become part of the story of LA architecture and LA housing design. That Indeed, you've got Michael Maltzen and Koenig Eisenberg and Brooks Scarpa, uh, Lorcan O'Herlihy. I mean, lots and lots of really talented LA architects have got involved with that arena. Michael Maltzen, if I didn't already say his name. And it has been fascinating that that's been an arena for experimentation. It says something about the developers at those corporations or or non-profit development companies themselves. They've you know, there's um, Skid Row Housing and there's basically a number of these companies that are helmed by individuals with real vision who work in collaboration with architects of high calibre to really develop some interesting architectural solutions. They also bring to the table, and this is a very interesting thing, they bring to the table other reasons for the architectural experimentation. And those other reasons have to do with the therapeutic needs of people who were formerly homeless. So, for example, it is generally understood that when someone has lived on the streets for a long time and then they are brought into housing, they face a lot of challenges sort of re-socialising. So one of the goals that these housing, several of these housing developers hold up is uh, hold very, to consider to be very important is figuring out designs of these places that enable socialization. So what happens is you're, you might be more likely to find in a so-called affordable housing development really good communal space. You might find a really good courtyard or external staircases where people can encounter each other. You might find internal social spaces. You might find emphasis put on a garden because that is considered of therapeutic benefit as well. You might find parts of the garden that are for the residents to do their own gardening because that's considered therapeutic. Sort of for reasons other than doing cool architecture, you're arriving at cool architecture, um, if you see what I mean. So I do think that's been a really interesting piece of what's been going on in affordable, whereas some of the market rate rental unit buildings may not feature some of those attractions. Now, if the developer wants to get a higher rent, then they will start to add in amenities in order to make their buildings more attractive. But no, the affordable housing has brought forth formal experimentation as well as planning that that lends itself to a particular kind of social experience. And I do find that really interesting. But it's really important also to note that affordable housing is not affordable. They've calculated that it costs something like $500,000 to deliver one unit of so-called affordable housing in LA. And that's 
that's really kind of a major problem. And what that is producing, what that is eliciting is elected officials, developers, all sorts of people in this industry looking at ways to reduce the cost of creating affordable housing. And so now that a lot of the conversation is around, can we do this with prefab? Can we cut out the costly union labour that, frankly, I'm sorry to bring this up, but that there are a bunch of contributory factors to that $5,000 a unit cost. And one of them is the fact that when you build affordable housing, the grants that the developers get from various grant givers usually come with strings attached. And the strings are often to do with environmental considerations, but they're also to do with with labour and hiring practices. So for all the right reasons, a lot of this affordable housing has to be built by union labour, But there, which again, I underscore for the right reasons. But then ironically, that winds up kicking up the price. And so now you have city officials themselves starting to consider other forms of delivery of housing. So there's a lot of conversation right now about prefab because and factory made housing and the idea, the question of whether that can circumvent some of these costs. So Francis says, we've discussed, of course, you know, the the image of uh, Southern California, the image of Los Angeles in the second half of the 20th century in particular was the notion of one's uh, self-curated lifestyle in the vehicle of the single family home uh, enabled by the vehicle of the automobile. Um, This was the image that lured, you know, Rainer Banham to Southern California at a point in time and also a a condition that he described as the so-called non-plan that Southern Californians had decided at some point in the 20th century not to plan or to, in Bannum's terms, effectively disaggregate decision-making across a whole wide array of elected appointed officials, boards, governments, from utilities, from the state government, all the way through community homeowners associations and the like. I think you've described this in your work quite uh, effectively. Having said that, as you've described also uh, in the last couple of decades, Los Angeles has uh, returned to its center. It's rebuilt its downtown. It's increasingly focused on multifamily uh, housing and notions of density and urbanity. Uh, And that's been all, you know, well-received and going quite well from a distance. Enter COVID-19. And now we're all back at home. Uh, And so from your perspective, uh, your observation about design and and the built environment in Los Angeles for uh, for a long time now, where do you see COVID? COVID and, uh, and the shape of the city going as we emerge from the pandemic? Well, COVID's been very, you know, obviously challenging and distressing to many on a number of levels. And it's also at the one and the same time, it's very fascinating to anybody engaged with, with the city and with design. Interestingly, after making the single family home the bad guy for quite a while or trying to make it the bad guy and trying to get people interested in living multifamily and using the newly emerging mass transit and generally having a more kind of Manhattan-inflected life in LA, after working on that project for, you know, probably 10 to 15 years in LA, at least a lot of advocates and uh, elected officials and community leaders and designers and so forth, all of a sudden the single-family home is now a place of safety and healthful refuge. So the single-family home has come roaring back. Um, admittedly, it's now a single-family home that you spend 24-7 in rather than getting in that car that's sitting in the in the yard or out there on the street and driving off to downtown or another economic centre to work. So a couple of things. Of course, people are looking around those homes and thinking, does it work when 
my entire family is stuck in here and we're all stuck with each other. And does it work for the shelter in place lifestyle? So that's obviously happening. In terms of a kind of a shift in where people are aspiring to live, boy, is the single family home market in LA just hot, hot, hot. What what I've been hearing anecdotally is um, single family home market is just roaring right now. And that's people trying to, a lot of people from within the US, domestic purchasers, getting out maybe of denser cities. Meanwhile, the rental market, which tends to be concentrated in the more multifamily areas, has softened. So even I feel that in my own neighbourhood, where now I live in Santa Monica, where there is rent stabilisation, so there is somewhat of an economic mix, but still... If you were late to the party in Santa Monica, you and and the rent would bounce to market rate, you could be paying $6,000 a month, you know, for a not very large two-bedroom apartment. And those rents have softened and have done across LA. So clearly, people want to be in single-family homes. Now, as all this relates to the multifamily that is in the process of being built, both in downtown LA itself, as well as on arterial streets, as well as in other neighbourhoods where, uh, where where such development is permitted. Well, yes, I've been speaking to developers and asking them, are they worried? You know, are they seeing a kind of drop off of people that were showing interest in buying into renting in these units? And what they'll say is in the short term, things, you know, are not looking great. Yes, things have softened. But long term, there's no need to worry. LA will always be a desirable place as long as the sun shines and people will still want to come to live here and they will still come and live in multifamily. However, developers who are able to pivot fast are making sure to now think about incorporating workspace into the apartment unit. They're also thinking more about how to incorporate open space into apartments This leads me to something that I think should be the law anyway, irrespective of COVID, which is access to open space. I was staggered to discover that in cold Toronto, it's pretty much mandatory for developers of condos or apartments to provide occupants, residents with access to a deck, with access to some kind of personal outdoor space, while it's not mandatory in LA, sun-kissed LA. In, 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 spite, of, in spite of the climate, I mean, you could you could ascribe this just more simply to Canadian reasonableness, but please go on. Yes, you could you could perhaps ascribe it to Canadian reasonableness as well as Canadian stoicism. In as much as really they want to go out on that balcony when it's like thirty below, but um, as a former resident of that fine town, I can tell you because the summer is so brief in duration, uh, Canadians do have a culture of going out in all in all manner of weather. It is true. Well, and more power to you, more power to you. But here in 300 days of sunshine, developers, it is not mandatory for developers of multifamily housing to provide personal outdoor space, which is why these dingbats are so mean and, in my view, really not livable long term. So, and I speak from the heart because I live in a multifamily housing a six-unit building designed by Frank Gehry, actually, many years ago. And it's wonderfully designed in terms of its indoor-outdoor relationship. So anyway, my hope 
for multifamily housing in LA is that developers won't be able to not offer personal open space for the tenants as well as other shared open space where there's some room for social distancing if we need that going into the future. So that's the general multifamily story as it relates to COVID. Let's just talk about downtown LA. Downtown LA is very interesting. It's going through a strange and challenging moment. So downtown used to be, um, for 40 years or so, people did not live in downtown. They'd left downtown. The freeways were built. The freeways were designed in such a way to take workers away from downtown to the suburbs that white flight had produced in such vast numbers. And um, downtown, basically the residential part of downtown was kind of winnowed out. People worked in downtown. It was a nine to five place for a number of decades. Certainly when I arrived here in the 90s, going to downtown at night was like going into the twilight zone because it emptied out. And I'm sorry to say this, but the reality of downtown, at least in the early 90s, was the only people that lived in downtown were the homeless. And that skid row was a home for the homeless. I'm, I'm sorry to sound, I don't mean to sound insensitive or crude or anything. I'm just saying that's what it was like. Well, you brilliant minds within the preservation community and others came up with this idea of this historic adaptive reuse ordinance that allowed for latent or dormant commercial buildings in the historic part of downtown to be converted to residential use. It, I won't bore you with the details of the ordinance, but it brought forth a massive transformation. All really in a short space of time, much of the historic district, which had lain dormant, became loft developments. And then that then precipitated a whole bunch of new development on these parking lots that sat there empty at night. And so downtown just roared back to life. And it went from... I, I, re I recall staying in a hotel that must have been a bank building for me. Yes, yes. There, yeah, there was... There's been a number of former bank buildings that have been converted. So anyway, and then came the stores and then came the restaurants and the clubs and downtown was just like, whoa, on seemed to be just going wham, bam into a whole new future and, and overdue because it was a huge expanse of space that was really not being maximised. So anyway, now you have COVID and um, you have at least according to accounts I've heard from people who are living in downtown who did who have made that choice to sort of live that loft lifestyle, downtown during COVID became not a pleasant place to be because almost overnight the restaurants had to close, the nightclubs closed, all the places that made downtown suddenly a vibrant downtown just ceased to operate, um, no coffee bars. Living the downtown life was a bit more like Manhattan where you didn't necessarily have your benefits inside your home. You went out for the benefits. So suddenly people found themselves trapped indoors without their outdoor benefits and feeling, you know, trapped at home. And then, and this is what I've heard from people who are living there, because the businesses ceased operation, the unhoused who already live on many of the streets of downtown spread even further. So I've actually heard descriptions from, say, one friend of mine who's a, in the architectural community. I sh I'm only not naming him because I haven't asked his permission. But anyway, he talked about living in his loft, 
that's near Pershing Square and looking out the window and on the streets of downtown are the homeless. And then you look up and you see the luxury towers and on the top roof decks of the luxury towers, you see people doing Soul Cycle. And he said, it's like something out of Blade Runner. It's um, it's really two extremes that are now living cheek by jowl, totally different economic levels in downtown. And another friend of mine who lives who lived in the arts district in one of the cool lofts in the arts district, he sold up. He and his wife sold up and left. They left, he said, it just... It wasn't worth the grief because there's various grieves challenges to living in downtown. It is stressful to be constantly confronted by the extent of the homeless problem. That is stressful in itself. And then downtown is fairly arid. It doesn't have the rich landscaping that makes living in LA so delightful. It doesn't have much parks. So there's there are challenges to being in downtown and but they were offset by the coffee bars and the nightclubs, et cetera, et cetera. The, the coolness, the art, the new art galleries. Once all of those closed, my friend said he couldn't enjoy living there anymore. So he was off. Quite a powerful, quite a powerful image. What a, what a picture to take away. Um, I mean, it is true. Los Angeles is um, relatively underserved by parks and open space by various measures. In part, you know, enabled, as you as you've described, by the kind of self-curation of one's own environment, right? I mean, everyone everyone in their own house, having their own backyard, their own pool, their own barbecue. In this regard, of course, I'm struck by your comments about the impact of the pandemic and the, the lockdown in particular on the shape of the city. Um, in some ways, of course, this is an old story, right? We know over a century ago, the so-called Spanish flu had an enormous impact on a generation or two of modernists who it, for whom it radically changed the way they thought about the relationship between inside and outside. Can you imagine something like that persisting in Los Angeles? That is, obviously, with respect to us all being at home together, we're learning a lot more about what our partners actually do for a living day to day and the challenges, especially of families with children living in cramped quarters. In that context, do you see the single family home in Los Angeles returning as a, a place of experimentation? Certainly, there will be things that will need to be sorted out, no? Sure, yes. And I should say that my daughter is one who has been most shocked to discover that her father has siestas during the day. But no, and well, you mentioned the Spanish flu. We should we should also say that in LA, much of its early marketing was aimed at TB sufferers. Pasadena, um, you know, LA was itself a, a post-pandemic city in that people came here for the cure, you know, and, and that was even before 1918 and the Spanish flu. And, you know, let's not forget the Lovell Health House. You know, the Lovell Health House by Richard Neutra, 1929, was very much born of a consciousness that architecture could provide a healing environment unlike those germ-filled, unsanitary tenements of, of New York or Chicago. So LA's history of home is very much built on a foundation of response to pandemic. So yes, I do think I do think the house is going to be a venue for experimentation. Interestingly, what was already happening in the LA single family home that was 
a burst in the last two years was the introduction of the ADU, the accessory dwelling units. I'm sure you've been told about this. This is the notion that LA's density and um, availability of rental units can be achieved without upsetting homeowners by allowing said homeowner to construct a unit in their own backyard or on top of their garage, which they then rent out. So the general character of the neighbourhood doesn't change, but you've all of a sudden doubled or you've at least in some way expanded your housing stock. People have jumped on this one. And so ADUs are proliferating. Now, interestingly, with the, with the pandemic, the ADU takes on a kind of new possibility as in oh, actually, I was going to rent out that ADU and then I was going to continue to go to my job in downtown or whatever. But now it's like, oh, actually, my company is saying work from home indefinitely. Perhaps that ADU will now become my office. So there's definitely that conversation happening. I will say that's a legitimized version of what already was happening in LA. When I came to LA in the 80s, people had structures in their backyards. They just were informal or unofficial. It's been, this has now been formalized. You can't rat out your neighbor on their, on the fact that someone's living above the garage because it's now formalized. That's certainly a way in which the single family home is evolving. And the other one is, of course, the interior. You know, even when Neutra or Gill or Schindler were doing their early experiments with the single family home, at that time, Despite the fact there was a good number of people who, yes, they did work from home, there was a bigger number of people that went somewhere to work. What this pandemic has produced is the realisation that thousands more people could be simply working at home. And I don't think LA is going to be unique in this, but I do think that, yes, we can expect people to figure out ways in which to reshape their interiors to make it possible to have both partners and maybe a couple of kids all coexisting, doing tests in the same space, doing Zoom meetings, et cetera, et cetera. So people, I think, are going to think more about basics like acoustics. I think they're going to think about the open plan. Does the open plan work when the entire family is in it? So it oddly, we might see some returns to some old norms like self-contained rooms. Imagine Um, that, rooms and doors. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine that, rooms. You know, we might. I'm certainly hearing about people figuring out ways to wall stuff off. (laughs) I've been seeing a lot of these really interesting kind of, you know, the, the phone booth. I don't know if you've seen this, Francis. The phone booth apparently is back, but it's in the kind of open plan office venue. Right. Where you can, you know, my friends in Manhattan that have a place with an office place with 40 or 50 employees, they have these phone booths. So you check them out, you reserve them and you step into them to take your call. I could imagine a domestic version of this. Yeah, no, absolutely. And those phone booths, I can attest to those phone booths because our own radio station moved into a building that had phone booths, albeit they were little rooms wrapped around the main room. And that's because open plan, developers and designers love open plan and then employees move in and then they don't like the open plan. So then as a way to kind of adapt, but keep the economies of the open plan, in go the phone booths. So um, so yes, that was certainly happening already. And yes, absolutely, the pandemic could totally produce 
little phone booths at home. I know that, you know, we we live in an apartment and we have a deck. The deck itself is quite a generous deck. And we looked into little outdoor phone booths, as in that one of us could actually be on the deck in a little, if you ever saw Doctor Who, you know, in our own little TARDIS, in our own little bubble that could allow us to work outside without the wind blowing our papers or birds pooping on our head. So, so yes, I absolutely think sort of pop-up kind of spaces are going to become very popular. Yeah, so this picture of you know Los Angeles proliferating, we, we did have a, a lovely conversation with Dana Cuff from UCLA about her advocacy for the, the state legislation that would enable the accessory dwelling unit. And there does seem to be a, a minor pattern emerging in our conversations that sometimes going going upstream, going going upstate, sometimes is more effective with respect to affecting change uh, in the context of the politics of uh, neighborhood in Los Angeles. Another of the corollary benefits I remember very early as we all were sheltering in places, we were all were, were learning to work uh, from home in perpetuity, the air cleared. The, um, the environment of Southern California changed um, very, very quickly, no? Yeah. I mean, it did change very quickly. It was marvelous. It was absolutely marvelous. At first, there was such a drop in um, car traffic on the freeways. And then also, you know, LA's got two ports and I think that there was a kind of contraction of stuff coming into the ports and then the the trucks going through the Southland, which are a big contributor to poor air quality here. Now, things have tilted back up again. You know, people have started to go back. And so the air and, and I also I will say that environmentalist friends were quick to point out back in March and April, you know, don't get too excited about the sudden improvement in the air quality because we always get an improvement at this time of year anyway. It has to do with, the, I don't know, the prevailing winds and temperatures. And so so anyway, but with those caveats, yes, the air got better and it was marvellous. And people became more conscious of of the very things that people were very conscious of back in the early days in LA, like the butterflies and, you know, the wildlife. And because LA and Angelinos do, do relish and treasure their proximity to the wildland, even as they trample all over it. So all of a sudden people, maybe, it was maybe they had time to notice or the air had cleared and the traffic cleared to the extent that the animals became more brave. But it really seemed like you suddenly were seeing more birds and the raccoons were out and people were spotting deer. You know, I was, I've heard these stories from other parts of the country as well, but there definitely was a sense, at least in the early days, of a kind of an acute awareness of um, of the flora and fauna around us. I mean, I myself definitely experienced that because I and my colleagues, we were all sent home. So I now work in at a desk that's in our master bedroom that opens onto a deck and the deck has an old pepper tree, a California pepper tree. And that pepper tree casts dappled shade over the deck all day. So I wake up to the dappled shade of the pepper tree and I have its kind of calming presence all day. And I have to say, I'm reminded that that is what people found so attractive about LA, is that you could come here and you could be a sentient being that wanted to produce whatever you wanted to produce, great plays, ideas, scientific advancements. You could you could be a thoroughly urbane kind of person, 
and then do your work with the view of under, under the shade of the dappled pepper tree. So I guess in an odd kind of way, the, the pandemic has actually perhaps amidst all its various lessons, I think it may have taken us back in some ways to, to a reminder of what the LA's attractions were back 100, 150 years ago. That's a really powerful image. You mentioned uh, first visiting Los Angeles in the 1980s and then um, moved to LA permanently in the 90s, if I have that right. Uh, you were educated in England. You, you studied in London and you were, um, you, were, you were studying architecture. Did you imagine at that point, you know, or did, did, was it always an idea to become a, a broadcaster, a, jur a journalist, you know, somebody kind of describing the world to us? Um, or w when did that path become clear for you? It wasn't always what I imagined, although I definitely was aware fairly early on that I liked talking to people, like pretty straightforwardly. I liked sort of communication. And I actually at high school studied art history and as part of my art A-level. And I remember really loving art history, actually. And um, so that so I was essentially a, starting to move into that role that I am in now, but didn't really realize it. The, the A-level the A is the college placement testing. That's right. You choose a specialty and you specialize for two years. So I did art and art history, and then I did French and German. So I did languages and arts, and I didn't do math notably. I didn't do physics. I didn't do any of the subjects that are useful if you then want to do architecture in addition to art. So anyway, it's cut a long story short. I did. I wound up at the Bartlett. And um, during my time at the Bartlett, I started early on to sort of grasp that there was a level of commitment to detail and a level of commitment to sticking with a project for a long, long time. And I sort of understood that neither of those were necessarily my biggest strengths. And I was pretty aware that I was a pretty sort of social, chatty person and that that was kind of Anything that didn't involve that side of my personality, I remember thinking I'm not so good in, in those areas. But weird, what did put me on this path was that the Bartlett back then offered a fourth year course, which was six months, which was a year out, basically. And they parked you for six months with a building at a building site and for six months with an architect. And what happened, that was the defining year of my life, because what happened was I spent six months working essentially kind of interning on a building site. That was a very, very educational experience, especially as a girl, as a woman, because really back in the 80s, you barely saw a woman on a building site. But leaving aside the gender piece, just being on a building site was a huge education. And I had to write a paper on it. That paper wound up being published in a monthly journal called the Architects Journal. Through the Architects Journal, I then met the staff of the Architectural Review and they encouraged me to write more. And then I moved to the architect's office. While I was at the architect's office, I became friends with a woman who won a prize to do a planning study in a city of her choice. She chose Jaipur, India. She chose to study the Haveli and she asked me to be her partner. The people at the Architectural Review happened to be doing a special issue on India and they said, can you be our gopher in India? So while I was in India, not only did I become fascinated with the Haveli and multifamily housing, but I also got to meet Doshi and a whole bunch of fascinating Indian architects helping the architecture review. I got back to England. It was February. I was at a loose end. What was I going to do at that point in the year? I couldn't go back to college. I had to figure out what to do. In that time 
period, Peter Davy, who was the editor of the Architecture Review, asked me out of the blue to come and interview to be an assistant editor. Lo and behold, many drinks later, because he did like his lubricated meetings, many drinks later, I somehow got this job as assistant editor. I'd been at the review maybe a matter of weeks, just getting my finding my feet. Peter Davy comes to me and says, um, we have a problem, Anderton. He used to invariably call me by my last name in that English way. We have a problem, Anderton. We've got this special issue on young American architecture built, sorry, booked, needs to be published in three months. Michael Sorkin was meant to be the guest editor and we've heard nothing from him. Well, it turned out that Peter Davy, over a liquid lunch at some place in the world, had had a few drinks with Michael and between the two of them, they'd made a handshake agreement that he would guest edit an issue for the Architecture Review. And then in the intervening time, it had all been forgotten. So I was suddenly, this project was dropped into my lap, which was fill 60 pages of an issue on young American architects and do it right now. So, And at that point, how, how many young American architects did you know, actually? None. Absolutely none. I'd been to America once. I had been to America once when I was 21 and I'd spent it in the heart of the wild gay scene of New York, going to all the nightclubs in LA, seeing Divine perform at Limelight. And I met one architect in that whole time. The woman who was in Talking Heads, her brother was worked for IM Pay and he was the project architect for the pyramid at the Louvre. And I and he took us, me and my friend Melanie, who went on this amazing trip to New York, really fantastic trip to New York. He he met us at the Waldorf Astoria and we thought he was the most handsome man and it was just all marvellous. You know, we were 21. So anyway, that was my one trip that I'd had to America. And so Peter says, do this young Americans. And he wanted me to do it from London by phone, not actually go to America. That was, he didn't see the point of that. So I contacted an old tutor of mine, David Dunster, who had been to America and said, what should I do? And he said, contact this woman, Julia Bloomfield, who's an expat, who's been in the New York area for decades, who's moved to LA. She'll help. And sure enough, I did. This is exactly what happened. I got on the phone with her. She said she was marvellous. She was absolutely marvellous. We're incredibly dear friends. She's one of my closest friends now. She basically said, forget trying to do the whole of America. Certainly don't try and do it by phone. Come to LA. Stay with me. I have a lot of contacts here. I'll introduce you to people. Off you go. And that's what happened. I went to Peter. I said, there's this nice lady in LA that's inviting me to go and stay with her. What do you think? And he literally, he had his secretary, which is what assistants were known then as, he had his secretary, Dorothy, look through the archives. Have we ever done a special issue on LA? And the Architecture Review started in about 1896. So she looked back through dog-eared library cards, you know, to 1896 and discovered that we had done a special issue on LA in about 1930. So lo, I was put on the plane and off I went to LA and it was an incredible experience. And I should say that from childhood, I had wanted to move to America, but I had always imagined it would be New York. I mean, that's where Europeans, most Europeans went to New York. There was definitely a contingent that went to LA. But for any of us that came of age in the 80s, you wanted to be in New York. 
And then I came to LA in 87 and met Tom and Frank and the whole lot. So 80s LA, not a bad venue to land in, not knowing many young American architects. And at a moment in time when, of course, there was quite a lot that had happened and had been relatively, still relatively underreported. Well, that's right. And I subsequently learned that this special issue that I did for the Architectural Review that came out in December 1987 actually inspired quite a lot of my generation to then move here. I, I found out this later that people had actually read this issue and thought, wow, LA seems really cool. So it was a very exciting moment in LA. It was also the tail end of the purely car bound LA. It was the tail end of the Rain of Banham LA, you know, just before the region started to rebuild its mass transit and, you know, got became more concerned with sort of the civic arena and and got us to this place where we're now talking about multifamily housing to the extent we are. So, Francis, where do you see um, the challenges uh, for the city of Los Angeles going forward relative to these topics? Uh, housing, affordability, clearly the politics of nimbyism and uh, political culture, which tends to be, you know, mistrustful of consolidated or concentrated power, except in the hands of, you know, local officials who somehow see their political future in protecting communities from change. Well, it's definitely hard to know how this housing issue is going to be fixed. I mean, the the numbers of homeless on the streets of LA are, are staggering and there is a kind of, you know, real sort of tale of two cities quality to LA right now. Um so that's that's obviously an ongoing challenge. Um, I don't know whether I should say this because it's I don't mean to sound like there's any kind of like delightful ironies, but I will say that one of the teeny tiny sort of surprises of the COVID moment is that it turns out that the pandemic did not spread like wildfire among the unhoused. And that actually brought forth some surprise, some some relief, but also a feeling of, wow, it really is better to be outside to try and keep the pandemic at bay. So that's that's kind of an aside about the unhoused. But so anyway, yes, housing, most definitely an ongoing and um, persistent issue. When LA, when Angelinos get back on the road, you know, in post-pandemic, I mean, we've sort of forgotten for the last four or five months, but before the pandemic, congestion on the streets of LA had become a nightmare. It had become a nightmare and mass transit was being built at quite a quite a thrust. But still, really, at least in my own circles, the vast majority were still using the car because the mass transit systems were too slow or not getting you really to where you needed to go because LA is so vast and spread out that the buses and the trains just can't get to every corner of it. And then rideshare came along and, if anything, amplified the numbers of cars on the road rather than diminished those numbers. So congestion was horrendous to the point that people, including myself, who love LA, were sort of saying, LA is becoming too hard to live in when you cannot get in to your car at five and go across town for a SIARC or even a UCLA lecture. I live in Santa Monica and even getting to UCLA at 5pm would be a nightmare. So I wouldn't even try. So that congestion was, and I'm sure will be again, a mammoth LA challenge because LA is uncomfortably becoming a transit city. It's, it's not a transit city in the way that London or New York are. 
It doesn't have the, well, I don't want to say London's as compact as New York, but London is old, so its system is underground and could go pretty much everywhere. And Manhattan is compact. So anyway, LA has neither of those advantages in terms of building a mass transit system. So that's a challenge. And back to the housing thing, you know, maintaining, not just keeping the unhoused housed, as in people who are at the poverty or below the poverty line, not just trying to remedy that problem, but also what to do with the next generation of, you know, young families that wants to stay in LA or even needs to stay because that's where the work is. And and yet they can't afford to purchase a home. And so for me, I what I think has to happen, and I've talked to Chris about this, as a, an anomaly in my community, as a long-term renter who's chosen to be for a bunch of reasons, mainly having to do with the fact that I love where we live. But how do you make long-term apartment living or long-term condo owning every bit as much the California dream as the single family home? And once you've cracked that nut, then people's choices expand, you know, because currently people are still trying, even people who are ardent supporters of the need for more dense housing, when it comes to forming their families, building equity, they're not going to choose that lifestyle themselves. They're going to choose the single family home. And that often means that their home is not where their work is and then they're driving and the old LA life is still in place. Post-COVID might change that a bit as people don't spend so much time going to another place to work, but it's not going to change it completely. One of the unique qualities of Los Angeles, of course, is its ability uh, historically and uh, and today to project images of itself, it, both its present self, to curate itself and to project a kind of imaginary. I remember, you know, for a decade or two, as the transit system was being built out, it seemed like every other film that was set in LA and shot in LA somehow had to feature the subway, right? So I wonder if if Los Angeles, compared to other cities that we look at, uh, has a better capacity, a more rapid response capacity to invent an imaginary, to project an imaginary of itself, which uh, changes the desire lines in a way. You mentioned the number of people now living at home with their parents, an astonishing rate, a percentage of, of uh, Americans who will not necessarily have access to that same form of the American dream. And at the same moment, it broaches this topic of multi-generational living. Of course, many, many Angelinos for many, many uh, generations have chosen both for economic but also for cultural reasons to live in multi-generational uh, housing situations. Can you imagine a moment in Los Angeles where the intersection of these forces as you're describing them, allow for a kind of the normalization or the destigmatization, let's put it that way, of a multi-generational uh, residential life? I think that's a great observation. I'm so glad you brought it up. And I would say the stigma doesn't exist in all cultures and communities. The stigmatization of multi-generational living, I think, is in you know, middle and affluent white communities. For some reason, it seems to be almost a wasp tendency to move further and further away from one's family members. While in LA, yes, as you've just pointed out, there are many communities and cultures that live, coexist out cross-generationally out of economic necessity, but also out of desire, you know, and think why, you know, it's lovely and it's lovely to have grandma around to watch the kids while mum goes off to work or what have you. And, and it, you know, having left my own 
parents back in the UK and moved here and then married here and had a child here. Once I had a child, how how much I wished my own parents, you know, lived in a little ADU, you know, in a corner of the deck. So one wouldn't have one's parents completely on top of oneself, but but they'd be near. And I now, you know, absolutely treasure and regret that I didn't myself experience a multi-generational adulthood. So I think you're absolutely right. I think that increasingly a broader band of people of cultures are recognizing the the need for multifamily and it's partly economic and it's partly well no i should say it's different economic factors one of the economic factors is just the cost of land but the other one is things like the cost of childcare people are realizing that childcare is takes out such a chunk of change that if granny can do the childcare instead, that obviously makes sense. And then the ADU thing, the way certainly people like Dana pitched the ADU as a concept, you know, the way they advocated for it was around models like extended family, where many of us are of a generation where we had our children late. And so we're sort of caring at both ends, you know, we're caring for our elderly parents who are still alive. And then we're also caring for our children who are not yet grown and gone. And when you've got those three levels of family, something like the house plus the ADU makes really perfect sense. So when the ADU serves that picture of an LA lifestyle, it seems to be a great solution. When the ADU just becomes another Airbnb, that's a problem. So yes, if that new mode of housing can service a social model like the extended family, that seems to be a really good thing. And that, yes, something we will see more of. And it's sort of going back to the future because, of course, that's how people used to live. And we've had this break kind of, which may turn out to be just a blip of time where we went for the nuclear family and we, and the nuclear family then, by the way, then Slough, the nuclear family got rid of the grandparents and then the nuclear family diminished even more down to living alone. And so I think I think one of the big issues of our time is the sheer volume of people who are suffering from solitude or rather solitude's nice, suffering from the dark side of solitude, isolation and loneliness. And the, um, and the pandemic has certainly brought that to the fore. And I am really intrigued in the multifamily housing models that are appearing to not only pack together residential units, but pack together residential units plus curated or architecturally formed shared social space. Thanks so very much. You're very welcome, Charles. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for your interest. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit fotac.gsd.harvard.edu.